Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Hi there. Thanks for joining us. This is Space Nuts. Uh, my name is Andrew Dunkley, your host, and uh, glad you could join us once again. Coming up on today's program, we are going to be looking literally, at the oldest black hole yet seen. It's not only the oldest, it is big, in fact huge, and it's very, very hungry. Uh, we'll also be looking at an asteroid impact on Earth. Yes, it happened. Why are we still here? Fred will explain. And the Mars copter has run into some communications issues. We'll cover all that, plus audience questions and a bit of homework coming up on this edition of Space nuts. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. And joining us to hash out all of that and much, much more is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. Um, what a surprise to see you there. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I was expecting someone else, but it was you. So I'm very happy about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, just as well, isn't it? Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nobody else would put up would would put up with our respective uh, uh, terrible banter. Anyway, I'm here, and I'm glad you're there, and uh, all is well. It's going to be a hot day for you, I think, out there oh, out yeah. west. It's hot yeah, we're getting Sydney, some really big numbers at the moment. Uh, 39 today, 40 tomorrow, 40. For Australia Day Friday, and uh, then we might get a, a brief respite into the weekend proper, but um, yes, stinking hot. I imagine it's also going to be very windy on Australia Day, so I imagine we'll have uh, fire weather warnings and all sorts of stuff. Dogs and cats living together. Oh, God, that's my favourite line. But uh, yeah, it's all um, it's all a bit hellish around here at the moment. I, I think I'd be better off pitching a tent on the sun at this point in time. <laughs> mm. yeah, maybe not. <laughs> yeah. Western summer, it's, it's, it's getting back to a normal Western summer. The last couple have been quite mild. Yeah. So this one, like last summer, we only had one day over 40 degrees. And this season we've had, I think this is probably the sixth or seventh. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's been very hot summer. Um, now... Let's uh, get down to business. Uh, the James Webb Space Telescope's been added again, Fred, and this time it's spied the oldest black hole yet seen, and it is a monster, and it is um, committing astronomical suicide by um, destroying its own galaxy by the sound of it. It's a very interesting story. Uh, galacticide, I guess it would be, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> That's what it would be. Pa pa 
Patricide is when you kill your dad. Galacticide. Yeah, that's. Uh, I think we've just invented something there. <laughs> it is a good word. Yeah, I'll just write it down so I don't forget it. Yeah, do that. Do that. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. Galactoside in galaxy. Remember where you heard it first, folks. Um, so, yes, so observations uh, led by a t- uh, from a team of international astronomers led by scientists at the University of Cambridge in the UK, and they used the James Webb Telescope uh, to look at some very early galaxies. Uh, and um, by that, I mean with a very long look-back time. So you're looking back to not very long after the birth of the universe. And we're talking now about a time probably about 400 million years after the Big Bang. So the Big Bang's uh, currently estimated to be 13.8 billion years ago. Uh, So this goes back 13.4 billion years, these observations. And uh, yes, what has been uh, discovered is a massive, in fact, a supermassive black hole uh, at the centre of this galaxy. And by that, I, I don't think they've got a particularly precise uh, number for it yet because it's so far away, but it is a few million times the mass of the sun. And that puts it very much in the in the supermassive region. Uh, and, and basically uh, what it does is throws another upset into our understanding of how galaxies and black holes form and grow. Uh, and so, so just to recap, um, Black holes seem to come in two sorts. Uh, the stellar mass black holes, the mass typically of a, a, a star, a, a large star, but maybe 20, 20 times the mass of the sun, uh, and supermassive black holes, which are millions to billions of times the mass of the sun, with very little in between. The intermediate mass black holes, which are thought to exist, and in fact some might be lurking in the insides of what we call globular clusters of stars, uh, but they're still very much more elusive than either the stellar mass black holes or the supermassive black holes. So how do supermassive black holes get so big? Uh, the thinking has always been that they start off with stellar mass size, you know, modest-sized black holes, just a few, maybe tens or even hundreds of times the mass of the sun, and they grow over time by accreting other materials. So if you've got one in the centre of a a, a youthful galaxy, there's a lot of gas in there. That gas can be sucked in to the black hole. uh, That's the accretion process um, and causes its mass to increase. But um, the problem is that is thought to be a process that takes billions of years. So you start off with something small and it grows to a supermassive black hole over a period of as I've said, billions of years. And this is only 400 million years after the Big Bang. And so, you know, it's it's essentially thrown the cut among the pigeons. It's, it's saying, well, how can we get a black hole this size so early in the universe? And um, the two ways that are being postulated are, first of all, maybe black holes, supermassive black holes form in other ways. <clears throat> Excuse me, they might come into being as a supermassive black hole rather than come come into being as a stellar mass black hole and then grow. Or uh, they can gobble up material, uh, the surroundings. In other words, they can accrete, to use the technical term, uh, much more rapidly than was thought to be the case. And they're estimating it would have to be about five times the rate of gobbling up that, that, that we've been 
you know, that, that, that astronomers have been working with so far, a number that comes from studies of how we think black holes accrete material and grow. So um, that's the current state. We've got uh, this conundrum, a black hole that should have taken more than a billion years to grow to the size that it has, but it's done it in 400 million years. Yes. Uh, and so it's, uh, it is a puzzle. Well, yeah, and um, in, in doing what it's doing, it's also um, destroying everything around it. Uh, but it, it seems to be doing it in an unusual way. There's this uh, a reference to an ultra-fast wind that's been caused by this process, and that's what's destroying the galaxy. Rather than it eating the galaxy, it's yeah. actually destroying its, for want of a better term, food source. That just sounds really bizarre. Yeah. It does, doesn't it? Um, and so uh, the the wind itself. I mean, normally things that come out of black holes, and they don't they don't come out of the black hole itself. They come out of the accretion disk. Normally, the pattern is that uh, you've got a black hole. It builds um, a kind of disk of material around it, uh, which is gradually swirling into the black hole, and that's how it's gobbling up. And and some of that material doesn't go into the black hole. It's diverted by magnetic fields into what we call polar jets, jets that come out at right angles to the disk. Uh, and that's the wind. But it looks as though there's something else going on here. Mm. Um, I don't know too much about this uh, this type of wind because I would have expected, you know, if you've got something that's really gobbling up uh, material around it very quickly, the wind will be directed perpendicular to that disk. But it may well be that under some conditions you get a wind that, that's, that's sort of blowing everywhere, what we would call isotropic in all directions. So, yeah, it's, um, it is... Uh, as you said, that um, is maybe pushing away the gas that this black hole needs to keep on growing. Uh, and eventually that would uh, stop the black hole from uh, accreting. The black hole wouldn't go away. It would still be there, but it wouldn't be gobbling up material anymore. It would become what we call a quiescent black hole, which is a bit like the one at the centre of our own galaxy. Uh, so uh, really interesting stuff. Um, one of the lead authors um, says this is the most exciting time in his career. It's a new era. The giant leap in sensitivity, especially in the infrared, is like upgrading from Galileo's telescope to a modern telescope overnight. Before Webb came online, I thought maybe the universe isn't so interesting when you go beyond what we can see with the Hubble Space Telescope. But that hasn't been the case at all. The universe has been quite generous in what it's showing us, and this is just the beginning. It's almost poetic, isn't it? Oh, very, very poetic. Um, and yeah. it also uh, is, uh, it, you know, uh, that points out the fact that the James Webb Space Telescope has, as promised, delivered it. Uh, you know, a lot of the time they say, this is the next big thing. It's going to do, you know, yay, yay. And then it goes up yeah. and you go, oh, <clears throat> it's, it's a blob out of focus. <laughs> uh, but this one's actually delivering and it's delivering spectacular yeah. results. Very much so. And the hope is that... Um, the telescope will be able to probe even further back in time to look at even earlier black holes, and that might give some clues as to what's going on in uh, in you know the early history of black holes. If we start finding dozens of these supermassive black holes at a very early stage of the universe, I think it means we've got to do some really serious rethinking uh, of, uh, of of what's uh, what's going on in those those uh, early galaxies. 
Uh, yes, indeed. And uh, this one's certainly thrown everybody in a spin because uh, of A, how old it is, B, how big it is, and C, what it's actually doing to its neighbourhood <laughs> and how it's doing that. It's all very, yeah, it's sort of thrown the uh, baby out with the bathwater in terms of theory in some respects, I suppose. So, uh, we, we, yeah, we... Yeah, we find these things and it opens up so many more questions, but uh, they will hopefully ultimately lead to uh, answers. That, that's, the, that's the hope, isn't it, Fred? Well, it's the way science works. Yes, that's right. So we've got, um, you know, we've got uh, uh, observations which don't fit the theory that exists. So you rebuild the theory and then do more observations to see whether the theory is upheld. It's very much the way astronomy works, even at these great distances from from our uh, from our own present time, great distances in time. Mm. All right. Uh, if you want to chase up that story uh, about this uh, incredible discovery and this uh, this rather strange black hole, uh, phys.org, P-H-Y-S dot org is the website where you can find that article. This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Let's take a break from the show to tell you about our sponsor, NordVPN. And uh, as a Space Nuts listener, you can take advantage of a New Year's deal uh, exclusive to you. Uh, there's a big discount on offer and four extra months uh, to uh, add on to the, the standard time that you select. Uh, so uh, what you need to do is go to the URL nordvpn.com slash space nuts, and that'll take you to the uh, the page you need to be on. And then you click on the link that says Get NordVPN. Now, don't forget, they've got a 30-day money-back guarantee. That's um, that's backing your product. 30-day money-back guarantee. So click on uh, Get NordVPN when you go to that URL, and you'll see all the options. There's a two-year plan, a three-year plan, a monthly plan. Uh, and within each, there are different levels. Uh, the, um, the one that gives you everything, the one that gives you most of the things that they offer, the tools, or you can get the basic plan. The basic plan has the high-speed VPN that's available through all their different levels, uh, as well as malware protection and the tracker and ad blocker. If you go to the next level, uh, it adds the cross-platform password manager. That, to me, is a must. Uh, the number of passwords people have these days, impossible to, uh, impossible to remember. And if you use one password for everything, and you get hacked, well, you've exposed yourself to someone who can access everything of yours. So this is a great tool. It even suggests really complex passwords that you don't have to worry about remembering. Uh, and there's the data breach scanner in there as well. If you go the whole hog, uh, you also get one terabyte of cloud storage and the next generation file encryption service. Now, the prices vary depending on whether you take it over a monthly plan, a one yearly plan or a two yearly plan. But uh, it really comes down to what you need. I did the two yearly plan, which meant I got extra months. In this case, you'd get 24 plus four is 28 months uh, at a, a very low rate indeed. So check it out, nordvpn.com slash space nuts and uh, click on get the deal and see what works best for you. And uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, you've got three months to try it out. And if it's not for you, okay, um, you don't have to stick with it. But uh, I'm pretty sure you will. NordVPN.com slash Space Nuts and uh, get the deal. I'm sure you will not be disappointed. It's the best in the business, believe me. I've been using it for a couple of years now. 
Now, back to the show. Okay, we checked all four systems and being with a go. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, let's uh, move on to something that uh, happened more recently than that uh, black hole forming. Uh, in fact, this happened only a few days ago. Uh, Earth was hit by an asteroid, it has been reported in the popular press, and uh, we're still here to talk about it. Now, what I understand is um, this one wasn't as big as the one that killed off the dinosaurs, but I have heard a report no. that there was a, a small lizard with a limp after this one. <laughs> <laughs> what, what that they, well, yeah, they don't have too many uh, lizards out and about uh, in uh, January in eastern Germany. Oh, no. <laughs> Nevertheless, have privileges. Privileges in the way of a good joke, though, Fred. <laughs> Quite so. Um, yes. Yeah, so, an object that um, uh, was actually well recorded by, uh, you know, by security cameras and dash cams and all the rest of it, uh, an object that uh, came to Earth over Berlin, in fact, in the eastern half of Germany, uh, over the weekend, uh, Sunday morning, their time. Uh, so, lots of video and. Um, a lot, a lot of people really interested in it. Um, it's got a name, as uh, all good astro sorry, all good asteroids do. So it's obviously being counted as an asteroid, even though it was a small object. Um, its uh, name is twenty twenty four BX one, um, and you might remember that the way those numbers work is uh, the date or the year twenty twenty four. The B says it was uh, the second half of January when it was discovered because uh, it's alphabetical for each half month throughout the year. It's very cleverly done. And then the, mm. the alphabetical order and then a number after that. Um, so it's uh, landed outside Berlin. Uh, the, the interesting bit is that it was an astronomer in Hungary. Uh, and I think, I don't know whether... This gentleman, Christian Sarneski, I think is how we would anglicize his name. Um, I don't know whether he's an amateur astronomer or a professional, but he discovered it and uh, and alerted the International Astronomical Union via the, there's an asteroid discovery uh, system that you can that you can use, uh, and uh, that was then confirmed by NASA, presumably with one of those telescopes, uh, and this all happened kind of. 20 minutes before the impact. I think the discovery was made several hours before impact. Uh, NASA confirmed it 20 minutes before insa uh, impact uh, with an absolutely spot-on prediction of where it would uh, where it would uh, land or where it would disintegrate over um, and at what time. And it was all right on the money. So this is interesting because it's the eighth time that an asteroid has been discovered before it hits the Earth. And um, that's telling you that the systems are working, particularly because this is thought to be about a metre across. So it's what you would call a very small asteroid and maybe a large meteoroid. <laughs> uh, there's a, that's a sort of grey area between the two. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's very, very... Um, um, you know, satisfactory outcome of uh, of what we're hoping to do in the world of of uh, of um, uh, planetary protection, as it's called, this idea of of trying to monitor threats uh, posed by asteroids before they happen. 
Um, the other thing is that uh, the gentleman who I mentioned, Christian Sarneski, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing his name, um, has discovered uh, three that have been uh, hitting the Earth. In other words, first he's done three of these eight uh, asteroids that have been discovered before they hit the Earth. Very well-known asteroid hunter. Yes, and seems to be very good at what he does. Uh, now, this one, as, as you said, uh, around about a metre, um, which is a little bit smaller than the one that um, hit the uh, hit the Earth and uh, brought about the beginning of the end of the dinosaurs. That one was as big as Mount Everest or something, wasn't it? And uh, this one broke up on impact, but they do think that it would have showered parts of um, of Europe with um, you know micro meteorites. I think they referred to them as. Yeah, so uh, lots of small bits of debris, um, and it. it it's possible that some of them might be recovered. It's, um, you know, it, it's wintertime up there. Um, meteorites are generally black, and often they're discovered in Antarctica where they're against a white background because of snow. Uh, maybe they will be discovered perhaps in the in the uh, regions of uh, Eastern Europe where this object is thought to have fallen, or bits of this object are thought to have fallen. So if you do want to, uh, if you're a listener from that part of the world and you would want to go out and hunt for these uh, micrometeorites, just just keep an eye out for limping lizards and <laughs> you, might, you might get lucky. Yeah, I think, yes, I think you'd, be, you'd probably be luckier to find a lizard than you would a meteorite at this time of year there. I, I <laughs> the lizards would be well hibernating, I think. They, they would, but uh, yeah, I, I would say when you hear the word est, uh, asteroid, you automatically think about the dinosaurs and the and the dinosaurs the do. Yes, rocks right. that have hit Earth in the past, and you make that yeah. assumption. So when uh, when you hear that we've actually been hit by an asteroid, you go, "Oh no!" But they're not always monsters, are they? No, they're not. Um, in fact, that's the interesting part about it at the moment. You know, all these uh, telescopes that are looking for asteroids are concentrating on the small ones because the big ones, most of them have already been found, yeah. which is good news. Yeah, we just, we, we've actually got to watch out for the ones that are just a bit you know, big enough just to get through. They're, they're the ones yeah. to, um, yeah. to, to consider. I think we, did we talk about that last week when I was talking about the um, asteroid protection group yeah. that I was sitting with in, in Vienna? Yeah, they, they postulated a scenario in which, uh, exactly as you said, a one-kilometre asteroid could get through. Um, it has to be in a very unusual orbit, but uh, it's possible. Yeah, never say never. But uh, we've, we've done the double asteroid redirection test and we know it works, so... <laughs> yeah, that's right. We live in hope. Exactly. Mm. Well, you, yeah, had right. your, you had your T-shirt on last week, didn't you? Did? The double yes. asteroid redirection test. Yes, that's right. I did. Now, uh, let's move on to Mars, and the Mars copter uh, has made the news, and that's because it stopped working. Uh, in fact, I think it was in the middle of a flight when it lost comms with NASA, and they thought, end of mission. Um, mm. So, yeah, it got a bit scary there for a while, but then it suddenly went, no, sorry, nothing to see here. It's all good. I'm here. I'm here. So what do we know about this? Uh, so exactly as you said, um, so, so it's not the first time, let's just preface it, it's not the first time that uh, that the copter has suffered communications issues. And I think the longest was uh, two months or something that it was. 63 days. 
Oh, there you go. Two months. <laughs> um, but this was uh, something different from that. Um, and what they were doing uh, was doing a test uh, flight. This is last week. And it was, wait for this. This number blows me away, Andrew. It was Ingenuity's 72nd liftoff off the planet Mars when it was originally planned to have five flights. Uh, so 72 is just an astonishing number. And it's been yeah. so invaluable uh, to the Perseverance mission. Um, so that's fantastic stuff. Anyway, uh, it was a quick test that they were doing. Uh, I think it was basically just uh, uh, an up and down uh in fact, they describe it as a quick pop-up vertical flight to check out the helicopter systems following an unplanned early landing during its previous flight. So there was an issue with the previous flight, and then they did this up and down, uh, but as it was coming down, it lost communications again uh, before touchdown. Now, the great thing is this helicopter is equipped with basically autonomous systems, and it has to be because... Uh, you know, the delay, uh, the time delay between signal leaving Earth, getting to Mars and then coming back again uh, is far too long to control helicopter with. Uh, so it's got its own brain and it does its own decisions uh, and apparently landed uh, safely, although um, it's out of sight of Perseverance itself. Uh, they can't actually see it. Um so uh, there is talk, or there was talk, of Perseverance actually having a quick drive over to have a look at it, a visual inspection, just to see if it's okay. Mm. Um, but uh, at least it's talking to Perseverance, so they've got, you know, they've got um, communications restored. Uh, and um, apparently, um, there was a post on X, formerly Twitter asking if Ingenuity would fly again. And JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, who who run the, the whole show, said that they are going to be assessing uh, the new information that's come from that before they'll decide whether it'll fly again. So that may have been its last flight. And mm -hmm. uh, on the other sad. hand, it may that just be very sad. It would be sad. And, and you know, it's just done such an extraordinary job of uh, of. of of reconnaissance uh, uh, in the area around Perseverance. It's apparently covered 17 kilometres uh, and gone up to 24 metres, which is quite quite a height uh, yeah. for a little baby helicopter like that. Yeah, it's and I, I think the other thing, yeah, that's right, 1.8 kilograms. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's rotors, if I remember rightly, are 1.2 metres long, uh, two of them rotating in opposite directions so that they balance out the torque. Um, the thing that gets me, though, uh, is, you know, um, Martian nights, the temperature way goes way down, uh, probably the minus 60s and things like that. Um, and, uh, in fact, the average temperature on Mars is minus 63, I think, if I remember rightly. Somebody might correct me if I've got it wrong, uh, just remembering. Um, but uh, Martian nights are very, very cold, and it's um, it's the solar panels which are, sit on top of the rotors are absolutely vital for, for keeping it warm uh, by the electric current that they generate for its batteries during uh, during the day, uh, which then keep the little spacecraft warm. Not really a spacecraft, it's an aircraft, isn't it? Uh, but they keep it warm uh, during the night. Mm. Yeah, it's been uh, one of the great success stories of NASA uh, for it to have lasted a heck of a lot longer than they planned, 72 missions versus the planned five. 
but also to survive the hostile conditions for such a long time. That's amazing. Yes, an extraordinary success story. And mm. um, we're full of admiration for the engineers who invented it and built it, basically. Yeah, and ho hopefully not the last we'll see of it, but if it is, it's still been a, a resounding success. You mentioned X, formerly known as Twitter. Did you hear that... Um, um, uh, I've forgotten the name of it. Um, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook are going to merge. Did you hear about this? It's going to be called. Oh, no, I didn't. Yeah, it's going to be called U Twitface. <laughs> uh, I should have seen that one coming, shouldn't I? <laughs> Probably. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Um, listen, um, I, I was going to save this till later, but I think we will tackle it now. Um, it's a bit of homework. Uh, last week, uh, we were talking about a dark energy survey uh, where it brought into question our understanding of the cosmo cosmological constant. Now, we've had a question from Lindsay asking us to explain the equation of state, the, the value of the cosmological constant, which is minus 0.1. But this survey has uh, rejigged that number to be minus 0.08. But what we didn't do, and I probably um, should have asked the question at the time, is what is that? How do they work that out? What is the equation of state? It comes from physics, really, Andrew, as you might not be surprised. And it, and it, it, it comes from considerations of a perfect fluid, <laughs> which has its own definition. Um, so if you imagine the universe as a perfect fluid, um, you can characterize it by this number, which is the equation of state, it's equal to the ratio of its pressure to its energy density. Um, and it's it's sort of, you know, it's part and parcel of thermodynamics. So the pressure to the energy density ratio doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really feed much in, into our understanding of, of what's happening in the, in the far universe. Um, but in the case that we're talking about, which is the cosmological equation of state, the, the equation of state as the universe, of the universe as a whole and how it relates to the accelerated expansion of the universe, um, it's, it's, um, uh, it, it, it actually kind of, kind of makes, makes more sense. Um, I'm going to just try and read a little bit about um, the equation of state from the good old Wikipedia website. Uh, the accelerated expansion of the universe can be characterized by the equation of state of dark energy. So it's the dark energy itself whose equation of state you're looking at. In the simplest case, the equation of state of the cosmological constant, that's what we were talking about last week, is minus one. In this case, uh, the, the, the I, I won't go into more detail, but um, if you've got an acceleration uh, of uh, an equation of state which is less than minus one third, then you've got um, you you've got uh, a different status, uh, and I think uh, I think you've got basically something that changes with time. That's the the bottom line of it all. I'm not explaining this very well at all, Andrew, and I hope there aren't any cosmologists listening or else they'll be turning in their, well, not in their graves, but they're turning in their beds. Um, so 
there is uh, there's something there is another uh, hypothetical thing that comes into it as well, which is phantom energy. That's a term I'm not familiar with. Uh, phantom energy is, uh, you know, it's a as I said, hypothetical form of energy, which actually has a different characteristic in the equation of state. Uh, in other words, it's less than minus one. Mm. Um, so it basically, uh, it's it's a lot of quite deep physics, uh, which is, as you're no doubt noticing, not that easy to put into simple words. No, uh, I can imagine. Well, I just heard it. But, um, <laughs> the bottom line is... The dark energy survey we talked about last week has put a question mark over the equation of state of the cosmological constant. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm that's, glad you're here, Andrew. That's the sim- that's the simple that. explanation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and there's only what a five percent chance that the minus point one is still relevant. Yeah, it's it's actually it's it's minus it's 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 minus one. Minus Um, one. I'm not sure you you might be looking at something slightly different, but it is minus one that it's thought to be. And I think this the value was rather smaller, wasn't it? Minus point eight or something like that. Yeah, something like that. Energy survey. Yeah. Yep. Yes, you're right. Yeah, and what I yeah, I'm just looking at the article now. Minus point uh, minus one. And now it's looking like it's minus 0.8. So, yes, um, my apologies. But, uh, yeah, thanks for the question, um, Lindsay. Um, nice to be able to follow that up and get a, let's call it an explanation. This is Space Notes. <laughs> Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Roger, you're live, sir, here also. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, uh, let's uh, see if we can answer some questions uh, on other matters. And the first one, I th- look, forgive me if I've messed your name up because I just couldn't quite catch it in the dialogue. In fact, I, I won't even say your name because you're going to say it for us. Hello, Fred. Thank you for a great podcast. My name is Manne Sjöberg and I live in Sweden. And I sent the question about why is astronomy important? Thank you for that answer. I've been thinking. A lot of celestial objects rotate, spins, like our planet, our solar system, the stars, the galaxies, and even black holes, if I understand it correctly. My question is, does the universe rotate? And is it possible that we have misinterpreted the expansion of the universe, but in reality it just spins and we are moving away from objects, like the moon is escaping Earth? Thank you again, and uh, hello. Thank mm. you, uh, Mon, I think he said, but I'm um, sorry if I got that wrong. Does the universe rotate, the whole universe? Um, apparently not. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, uh, the question that you immediately ask, Andrew, is how would we know? Uh, well, that was the next uh, question. Yeah. How do you know if it's rotating or not? Because you're in it, and the universe, by definition, is everything that we can, we can, um, you know, we can observe or uh, or understand, mm. uh, detect. So um, uh, it's it's um, a, basically one of these questions, uh, though, that people do ask in exactly 
the way that we've just heard this morning, oh, sorry, today, uh, that is because it's a natural thing to ask that that uh, everything uh, in the universe seems to rotate, absolutely everything, uh, but is the universe itself rotating? And I guess the best way to put it is that uh, there is no evidence that the universe is rotating uh, by any means that we we you know we investigate uh, whatever means we use to investigate it. There's no evidence that we do uh, that we do find a, a rotating universe. Um, so uh, the bottom line is uh, the fact that we you know we have to we're sitting in the universe itself. And the only things that we can measure, certainly at cosmological distances, are the redshifts, uh, the the expansion of the universe, the the, the way it's you know the way its shape is changing. If I can put it that way, even though we don't know whether the universe has a shape, uh, we can we can detect its expansion. Uh, so that is one of the things that we do know that the universe is expanding. Uh, I have seen articles in the past that um, say. That suggests I haven't ever followed this up, so I I don't know you know what the details are. I should do that. Maybe a bit more homework. Uh, that suggests that if the universe was rotating, we'd be able to travel backwards in time. Um, that uh, seems a very unlikely scenario to me, uh, because relative relativity doesn't like the idea of backward time travel. You can go mm. forward, but not backwards. So. Um, uh, it's uh, yeah one that might be worth following up, but yeah, no evidence that the universe is rotating. It, look, this is a really simple explanation on my part, but uh, I could I could imagine if it was rotating, it'd be like a glass of water. You know, when you've got a glass of water and you put something in the water and then you rotate the glass, that yeah, it doesn't really affect what's inside. You know what I'm saying? So even if it was rotating, well, it might not do anything. Um, it uh, yeah, that's an interesting analog because it almost uh, counteracts the argument. Because if you were inside a glass of water and it was rotating, uh, what you'd see would be the effect of the centrifugal force of the water being pushed outwards, and you might think you were in an expanding glass of water. <laughs> well, and if they carry that to the universe, uh, you know, somebody's going to say, "Oh, it's expanding because it's it's rotating." But then, yeah. but that well, implies there being a yeah, that's what Mon was asking, though, because uh, you know, the second part of his question was, if the universe is rotating, does that change the expansion theory? Yeah, so I, I yes, I missed that bit. I was too busy worrying about the un- rotation of the universe. <laughs> um, it's thought not to be, uh, and um, the you know the the the, the, the I, I guess one of the things that comes into this. Uh, sorry, I'm floundering for words here one of the one of the uh, the the points is that if the we take the traditional definition of a universe which is everything we can see or measure or detect then we would have no way of knowing if it's rotating because there's no frame of reference outside it within which it's rotating so that the answer would be no and and i think the only way that you could contemplate a rotating universe would be by 
um, accepting the premise that there are other universes out there, uh, that ours is just one of many universes. Then if you take that step, then you might have the possibility that it's rotating. But as I said, there's no evidence that it is. Okay. Yeah. Gee, it, it certainly dredges up uh, um, all sorts of questions and ideas and uh, you'd need a very big water cooler to stand around and uh, and talk about this, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and a great question, though. And thanks for uh, thanks for sending it in. Uh, let's go to a text question. This one comes from Lachlan uh, in no James in um, Minnesota. He uh, says, hello from the great state of Minnesota. That's a coincidence because that's where I thought he was from. Right off the bat, thank you uh, so much for your educational insight and incredibly down-to-earth, pun intended, podcast. You make standing at the mill so much more enjoyable. I started at the very beginning of uh, your show and I'm currently in the middle of May 2021, so I've got a ways to go before I catch up. But um, my question is a bit of an abstract one. Suppose you discover an anomalous telescope of irrelevant size. And what makes this telescope anomalous is that when you look through it, it will show you whatever celestial celestial body uh, it's pointed at in real one-to-one time. What is the first thing you would look at uh, supposing there's nothing in the way? Uh, both from a standpoint of personal choice and a broader standpoint of humanity as a whole, wanting to learn as much as we can about the universe. Very much looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Uh, thanks, fellas. James in Minnesota. So you've got a telescope. You can look uh, anywhere in the universe in real time. What do you look at, Fred, first and foremost? Um, I think we've discussed this before, actually, Andrew. <laughs> I'm trying to remember what I, what I said then. <laughs> you do get questions like this from time to time. Yeah, just yes. I think it's a it's a similar question to one we've had before. Um, mm. So, uh, yeah, I mean, what what you, what I would really like to see, and it's not really aligned with this question particularly well. But if I could take a telescope anywhere and look. I would love to see our galaxy from the outside. Um, so not only would I be wanting to see, you know, this hypothetical telescope uh, to see anything instantaneously without the delay of time, uh, then uh, not only would I want to do that, I'd want to move it as well so I could see what the sweep of our galaxy would look like from the outside. So it's taking the question a little bit further than we've, than than, our, uh, than James probably intended. Uh, no, so enough. maybe I'm answering a, a different question, but that's what I'd like to do. Take this hypothetical super-duper telescope, <clears throat> plonk it something like 100,000 light years above the pole of our galaxy. might be a dangerous place, actually, because the pole of our galaxy has occasionally known, been known to be uh, the source of some high-energy material coming from the super supermassive black hole at the middle of the galaxy. Um, could be a dangerous place, but it will give you a beautiful view uh, down on the spiral structure of our galaxy, and that's what I'd love to see. Okay. No, that's a good answer. I wouldn't have thought of that. Um, for me, James, um, let's just stretch this as far as we possibly can. Literally, I would want to see the actual edge of the universe. I'd want to see what's going be you know, going on beyond the visible universe. You said assuming nothing's in the way. Well, let's just move all that stuff out of the way. 
I would point the telescope and I could go any direction I want uh, and just find the actual edge of the expanding universe to see what's going on. That's what I'd want to see because that's one of the great mysteries. So for me, that's um, that's the answer. What do you reckon, Fred? Well, we don't think it's got an edge. That's the yeah, why not? <laughs> well, let's assume it has. So um, I'd so... want to see what's going on out there at, at the expansion point. Yeah. whatever it is, whatever it is, that's that's where my brain. I at. mean, to, to some extent, we. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, it is interesting because you know we what we see when we look as far out as you are talking about there, we we see the cosmic microwave background radiation, but that's because we're looking back in the past. Mm. And what James is saying is you're not looking back in the past; you're looking at what it is like now. Yep. Um, and so uh, it could be infinite. You might not run against an edge, Andrew. That's the no. conundrum of cosmology. We don't know whether the universe is infinite or not. But that's why we want to have a look. <laughs> that's why I want to. I, I want a loan of James's yeah. telescope. <laughs> so it's a very you're you're you've given a very profound answer there, which um, which I applaud. It's better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just, I love these. I love these what if questions that we get sent yeah. occasionally. I, they're good fun. Thanks, James. And our final question this week is from Ian. Hello, this is Ian from Cambridge. Just got a simple question. Um, what is the temperature of space um, around sort of the Earth orbit uh, from the Sun? Um, so the distance from the Earth to the Sun. What's the temperature of space? I asked the question because when I Google it, it says it's about 2.7 Kelvin. But then you hear the James Webb's teles telescope that one side is very, very hot and the other side of the shield is, is cold. So I don't understand how... Uh, general temperature of space um, from distance from Earth sun is only 2 Kelvin. Um, appreciate it if you let me know. Thank you very much. Okay, we'll be sending you an email. Uh, or <laughs> ask Fred, um, what's the temperature of space? I, I think when he refers to one side of uh, the James Webb being hot and the other side being cold, that's, that's because of the radiation effect, isn't it, of the sun? Whereas in general space, which is what it is, nothing-ish, um, there's, there's a temperature, I imagine, and that's what he's asking about in the in the vicinity of Earth. So, so yes, so uh, the, the the background temperature of space is indeed 2.7 degrees Kelvin. Okay. Um, and what that is, is the radiation from the Big Bang. It's the... Uh, it's actually the temperature of the cosmic microwave background radiation. So when you look at, we've just talk, talked about it, you're looking back so far in time, you're seeing a time when the universe was still glowing brightly. It was still luminous. It's now visible in radio waves, uh, microwaves, uh, because of the expansion of the universe, stretching the visible light wavelength out to microwave wavelengths by a factor of about 1,300, I think, if I remember rightly. So um, what... Uh, th that's the underlying temperature of space, and it is indeed 2.7. Uh, we can generate, believe it or not, uh, here on Earth, temperatures colder than that, <laughs> um, much, much nearer to absolute zero than that 2.7 degrees. So um, on Earth, you can generate cold temperatures. Uh, but exactly as you've said, um, in the vicinity of, the, uh, of a star like the sun, 
you've got radiation coming from that object. Uh, it doesn't affect the temperature of space itself, but as soon as that radiation falls on another object, then it heats it up. It's exactly how infrared radiation works. So um, it's, uh, it, it, is, it is a higher temperature uh, on the surface that you're measuring. Um, but if you were out in the middle of nowhere in space uh, and you had a thermometer, 2.7 degrees, it would be what we call a bolometer, actually. A bolometer is a device that measures uh, temperature across all wavelengths. So right. uh, 2.7 degrees is the right answer. Uh, so, yeah. Ian, um, your bafflement is understandable, but uh, that's that's the correct answer. I, I'm just stunned that I actually got one right. So I <laughs> did. You were right in the money. Yeah. You don't need um, to. You could just oh, have a go yeah. at the equation of state as well. <laughs> uh, I couldn't do this. couldn't do this by myself. Yeah. Um, thank you, Ian. It's a great question, and um, it certainly cleared that up. Um, and we appreciate your questions and your comments. And even if you want to send us corrections, we uh, we ignore those. But you can send them anyway uh, via our website, <laughs> via our website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. We'd love to hear from you, uh, whether it's in text or audio form. Uh, if you do send an audio question or even a text question, don't forget, uh, forget to tell us who you are uh, or where you're from, like uh, James in Minnesota, who's going to... Um, invent a new telescope it's going to be good be called the james at minnesota space telescope and it will see everything in real time that would be an absolute you'd make you'd make a couple of dollars out of that unless you sold it to the government then they they'd make you pay to give it to them but uh anyway um, lovely to hear from all of you and fred as always um thank you that brings us to the very end of this episode <laughs> not, not too early <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. Good to talk, and uh, we'll we might speak again next time. <laughs> we might too. We might. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, uh, uh, as always, we thank him for his uh, very precious time. And to Hugh in the studio, thank you too for reasons um, I'll have to look up. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, uh, good to have your company. Hope you can join us on the very next episode of Space Nuts. Bye bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from bytes.com.